So, welcome to this evidence-based nursing podcast. So, I'm Joanna Smith and I'm one of the associate editors at Evidence-Based Nursing. And this week I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Alison Twycross, who has been invited to discuss her article entitled Children and Parents' Perceptions of Post-Operative Pain Management and Mixed Methods Study. This article was critically evaluated and published as a commentary in the Journal of Evidence-Based Nursing. So welcome, Dr. Twycross, and I wonder if you could start by introducing yourself to our listeners. Okay, thank you, Jo, and thank you for the opportunity to record this podcast. I'm um, Head of Department for Children's Nursing at London South Bank University and also a reader in children's pain management, as well as being the editor of Evidence-Based Nursing. So, Alison, it's a great pleasure to have you doing one of our podcasts. And one of the reasons um, you were invited was because you have published extensively on pain care and pain management in children. So I wonder if you could start by explaining to us why you're so passionate about pain management in children. Well, I guess my interest in pain management began right at the start of my nursing career when I used to volunteer in the local hospice once a week while I was doing my A-levels. And I saw that even intractable cancer pain could be relieved. In relation to pain in children, I guess I've been researching this area for nearly 20 years now. And one of the reasons I'm so passionate about it is that we have the evidence out there and readily available in the form of clinical guidelines about what we should be doing, uh, particularly in relation to post-op pain and in relation to procedural pain. But we still don't seem to be using this evidence in practice. And and also recently there's been increasing evidence that mismanaged acute post-op pain leads to chronic post-op pain in a significant proportion of adults and children, which emphasizes to me the need to manage pain effectively. Thanks, Alison, and I think you're right. But we're going to focus on, to start with, the recent publication which you and a colleague authored. So I wondered if you could just say why you thought um, a mixed method study in relation to exploring children's and parents' perceptions of post-operative pain was appropriate, and why was this a strength of the study? One of the reasons we did a mixed method study was well, primarily because we were using different methods for the parents and for the children. And when, when, I read, when I read the literature, the very limited literature out there about parents and children's views, in most studies, children had been interviewed about their views on pain management. And there'd been a mixture with parents. I used a questionnaire that had been validated previously that Roxy Foster gave me permission to amend slightly for the parents. And that was... I was collecting data in in a a tertiary hospital in Canada. The children were in for at least 48 hours, and the questionnaire was filled in as the parents were about to go home. So doing an interview with them, I don't think they'd have wanted to do an interview. So we used the questionnaire, and we got a huge range of data about their views. For children, I wanted to get in-depth data about their experiences, and so used a range of interview techniques from the draw and write to a standard interview and or to allowing children to write their responses because there were a significant number of children in the study who'd had surgery on their jaw and so it would have been really painful to them to, to, to speak their responses. 
So it was really about getting a range of views and getting getting the best best data. Interestingly, if I did the study again, I think I would use a questionnaire for both parents and children because there is an equivalent children's paper, a questionnaire, sorry. And I think that would allow greater comparisons to be made between the children's and parents' data and would mean you could go for a larger number of participants and potentially go in more than one site. Yeah, I think that's the advantage, isn't it, of mixed method studies. However, um, if you, you've highlighted that if you were to do the study again, you would use a questionnaire, but questionnaires have limitations as well. So um, do you think that the timing of interviews is important and maybe immediate post-discharge isn't the best time for those kind of interviews, which do give you a different angle to questionnaires in isolation? I, I, I think one of the issues was that because the children came from the over three provinces in Canada, it was very difficult to interview them after they'd left hospital. And so we decided to do the interviews as they were about to leave. I had, been, I had spent various points of time over the, the 48 hours previous to them with them, so they did know me. But I, I, I think one of the things that disappointed me about this study is I read all these other, I probably shouldn't say this, but I read all these other studies that had interviewed children and they had this really in-depth data. And I know that when I looked at my data to start with, I was disappointed that I, it, it didn't seem as um, in-depth as the results reported in previous studies. Now, there were some interesting themes there and there were some interesting results. But I think maybe you've hit the nail on the head and it was the timing of, of, the, of the interviews that maybe meant I didn't get as in-depth data as, as I, could have, I could have done. The children maybe still didn't feel 100%. I mean, they did consent to the interview. And there were also the two little kids, two of the youngest kids who, who did a draw and write, drew me some lovely pictures but didn't really understand the questions. And again, maybe maybe that was because of the venue and the timing and things. Yeah, I think what you've highlighted is the difficulties in collecting that kind of data in children. And I think the setting does maybe influence how they share their experiences. And perhaps from a pragmatic point of view, you have to do the best you can at the time you're collecting data. Yes, sorry. I think it's real world research and you, you make a decision and you live with the consequences and one thing I tell my students is that no research project is perfect. And I think it w I was reflecting this morning on what I would do differently. And I I'd always kind of wondered what sort of data I'd have got if I'd used a questionnaire with both, both parents and children. Yeah, I suppose in the ideal world, all those data sets would be useful. We just haven't got that luxury. No, we haven't. So, so thinking about the findings you've you've alluded to already, there's an increased evidence base around pain management in children. What do you think were important about the findings of this study? Well, this was one of the first studies to look at children and parents' views for a decade, because a lot of the, the research is is, is um, from like the beginning of the 2000s or before. And I, I pulled out two key findings. One was this adds to the evidence that children are still experiencing moderate to severe pain postoperatively, despite us having the evidence. And 
with the number of undesirable consequences of unrelieved pain, both physical and psychological, that have long and short-term impact on children. That worries me. I mentioned earlier about the increasing evidence that badly managed or poorly managed acute post-op pain can lead to chronic post-op pain in a significant proportion of children. The numbers vary between studies. So it, it adds evidence that children are still experiencing moderate to severe pain. Um, and that links to the, the, second, the second issue in that nine of the 10 children said their worst pain was five or above. A lot of them said it was eight, nine, or 10. But they were still satisfied with their pain care. I think that suggests that there's a need for some education that, that appears to be an expectation that because you're in hospital and because you've had surgery, that you're going to be in pain. And there seems to be a lack of understanding about the need to manage pain effectively. Uh, my cousin's girlfriend had surgery recently, and I remember giving him a lecture on the need for her to take pain meds. So I think, I think there is a perception among Joe Public that you almost have to grin and bear it. We know from other research that parents hold sort of some myths and misconceptions about pain medications and pain management. A lot of parents think all pain medications are addictive. They think that, that they should be given as, as little as possible and that children would tell you if they were in pain. That there's a need, I think, to find some way of educating and empowering parents to advocate for their children in this situation. Even if it's just saying, tell me if your child's in pain, we, and I don't think it's an easy answer. But I think it's quite interesting that parents were satisfied with the care and children. And that's been found in other studies as well. Do you think, though, you've mentioned parents here, but nurses have a role here. And do you think that they have a similar perception as the general public in that some pain should be tolerated and expected and that we're in some ways colluding with that perception? I think that's quite an interesting thought, which I think I agree with. And interesting, Alan and I also have had a paper published on nurses' aims when managing post-op pain. And it does seem that there's individual variation across, across a group of nurses about what they aim to do. Some of them just aim to make the child comfortable, whatever comfortable means. Surgeons, interestingly, say the same thing. But other, other nurses had a range of, of pain scores that they, that they would, would aim for. So I, I think perhaps nurses' beliefs need digging down into a little bit. And at the end of the day, nurses come from the general public, so it's hardly surprising that they, they, they have the same perceptions. So if you just think about those ideas you've put forward, what do you think are the implications of this study then for healthcare professions and nurses in particular? It's probably nurses in particular because they're the ones at the bedside Although there is, there is evidence that surgeons have similar misconceptions as um, as nurses from a study that, that another study that Alan Finley and I did, I think nurses need to take note of the fact that these children are still experiencing moderate to severe pain in hospital. I'm not the only person to have found that recently, and actually take some responsibility for that. And we somehow need to find a way of making sure the evidence we have. <laughs> 
is used in practice. I think we need to look at organisational culture because there's evidence that different wards in the same hospital manage pain differently. We need to look at knowledge translation models and see if they can help guide us. And I wasn't going to say this, but I think I will. The other thing is, at the moment, if you don't manage a child's pain properly, as a healthcare professional, nothing happens to you. If we started seeing pain as an adverse event, mismanaged pain as an adverse event, which then meant that healthcare professionals had to go through the um, hospital's adverse event procedure and maybe do audits and such like, I wonder whether that might have an impact and might just change culture. It's a bit of a stick rather than a carrot. But I just wonder whether the time has come to do some work changing perceptions about what's acceptable pain management. So if you had to highlight then, based on all those ideas you've just postulated, what further research is needed, what do you think we could do some work on to try and change or influence practice? I think we probably know that organisational culture does impact on pain management practices. But what we need to know more about is how we can change those world cultures. So I think we need to do some intervention studies, trying out different methods to see which is the most effective at changing cultures. It may be that there needs to be a, a variety of methods, but at the moment, we, 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 no one's tested out what changes world cultures we, we know that something, some things like having a good leader and, um, and the leadership style of your manager or leader impacts on how research is used in evidence, but we need to actually test some of these things out so that we know what it is that encourages evidence to be used in practice and evidence about pain management to be used in practice. I also think we need to look at how we can explore supporting parents to manage their children's pain and challenge those misconceptions. Because I think parent power could change things. If parents start agitating about their child's poor pain management, things might change. Yeah. Alison, we're coming to the end of this podcast now. So if, you, if the listeners were to take away one key message, what would that message be? That the evidence to manage post-op pain is out there and we have a responsibility as registered nurses to make sure we're using it in practice. Yes, I'd completely support that view. So um, my job now is just to thank Alison for taking her time and sharing her insights and wealth of experience around researching pain and pain care and management in children. So thank you again, Alison, for undertaking this podcast. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about my research and about pain management. Thank you.